0: This park. Well, we are disciples of Jesus that build generational and transformational disciples of Jesus I'm pastor Aaron. I'm gra- so glad that you guys are all here today with me as we're continuing our series on following Jesus Of course, if you're being a disciple of Jesus it means you're a follower of Jesus And we want to know what Jesus did and what he taught and that's what we're doing this summer going through all four Gospels and uh, seeing the life and the teachings of Christ now, um Since you are here inside your bulletin, if you wouldn't mind, take out this green connection card and fill it out for me if you wouldn't mind. And at the end of the message, just drop that in that box at the back of the room. Uh, On your way out, I would be appreciative. If you're a guest with us today, special welcome to you. So thrilled to have you with us you can fill out whatever you feel comfortable filling out and at the end of the message along with everyone else you can drop that in the back there but since you have these out here a couple things one if you have prayer requests write those on there through the message and so i can pray for you this next week but also uh this series you might have noticed that we've been going through there's a lot of maps and pictures and things like this about following the life of jesus and uh that's because he actually lived in a real world and went to real places and things like that and it's uh, pretty neat now uh as you know, we are going to be going as a church to Israel next uh, April coming up, right? March, March. <laughs> it's going to be quicker, sooner than I could think. Anyway, the uh, if you would like to join us on that uh, opportunity to go and to see these places that I'm talking about now, uh, there is still a few seats open. I think there's like eight or so um, slots that are still open and so I encourage you if you would like some more information about this trip or to join us you can just write Israel on your connection card and make sure that we have your contact information and we will reach out to you this week and help you uh, answer your questions and help you get uh, connected all right with that let's go into the message because we are third year of Jesus's ministry this is eight weeks in that we've been going through already and uh, we have a memory verse for the series which is uh, Matthew 16:24. of course we want to be followers of Jesus we want to know what Jesus wants asked of us and so these are his terms of discipleship and so here we go just say it along with me Three, two, 1. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. All right, just to test ourselves. Here we go. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16:24. Oh, you guys have been practicing. Which is great. Well, if you're new to it, don't worry. Um, if you need a little more practice, we do have the the memory verse on our connection cards. So you can just it's perforated and you can take that off with you and memorize and think about what does God ask us to do as we as we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. All right. Well, here we are at the third year of ministry. Um, it just kind of began in the last uh, session. This is going to take us up to basically that 6-month period. That's what we'll be talking about today, the Um, So we're in the last year of Jesus's ministry. I'm going to call this one Travels with the Twelve because Jesus's focus in this third year goes from preaching to the crowds to traveling with the twelve and really pouring into the twelve disciples. And so what happened last week, if you remember, Jesus uh, took the disciples to uh, Caesarea Philippi or the pagan worship center and he says uh, who am I and Peter says you are the Christ son of the living god right the messiah and Jesus said that's true and then he takes three of the disciples and they go up to uh, a high mountain and we're not sure what mountain that is but I'm I'm going to guess it's Mount Hermon just because of the location of where everything's taking place and he goes up there and there's a transfiguration and so The three disciples, they get to see Jesus transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah show up and all those pretty great. And then they come back down. And this is where today's story picks up. It's the three of them plus Jesus coming down off the mountain. And the first thing we find is that the disciples can't hear a demoniac boy. So Jesus is coming back down from the mountain with his disciples, and they just saw this amazing thing. The other disciples are there, and they had that uh, just a week earlier. Jesus had uh, uh, taken there and said, Who am I? And they said, You're God right, and Messiah, and their eyes were being opened to who Jesus is. And so those disciples that that were left behind are staying at a camp probably uh, here at the bottom of Mount Hermon, right? So there's Caesarea Philippi. That's why I think that's where the mountain is because it's right there, kind of the base of it. And they come back down to this, and the disciples who were left were probably camping out there and people coming for healing. And this man comes, and uh, he's... uh uh, or this whole crowd is there, and they're looking for healing. And Jesus gets closer and closer, and he finds out that the people are arguing with the disciples. And that's where we read in Matthew 17. It says, then they, that's Jesus and the other three disciples, came to the crowd. A man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire into the water. And then there's this bottom part. I brought him to your disciples, they, but they could not heal him. Now, this is surprising because if you remember back in Jesus's uh, second Galilean tour, he sends out the disciples in pairs, right? Uh, and so sets of two, and he gives them authority to cast out demons, and they cast out lots of demons. And so here's a strange thing. They come back, and all of a sudden, here's this demon. They can't get cast out. And Jesus's reply to all of this, it says, You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? I think he's getting a little exasperated. He's already demonstrated his power. He's done all these things, and there was a transfiguration and all this, but he had revealed his power, and he's frustrated. And who's he frustrated with? The entire generation. Why? That's the generation where God showed up where they got to see the miracles. They didn't have to read about it in books. He was there. God was amongst them. He had given them lots of opportunities and reasons to believe, and yet they still didn't. He's getting frustrated. One thing that irks Jesus, I think, is disbelief, in spite of all the evidence he gives us to believe. It frustrates him. But he still has compassion, even though he's frustrated. He doesn't just storm off and like, it's like, all right, bring the boy to me. And so the, the, the father does and, and the boy shows up and he, you know, he shrieks and passes out and he's on the ground and it's, you know, dramatic and, and all of that. And Jesus is like, as the kid's just laying there and he looks at the father, he's like, how long has he been like this? Father says, well, since he was a child. And he says, often throws himself in the fire or water, tries to kill him, all these kind of things. It's absolutely horrible. But he said, but if you can do anything, please help us. And Jesus' response to this is, "If you can." This was, this was a challenge. This was an insult, "If I can." Oh, you remember me casting out, I don't know, entire legion when they surrendered to me without even doing anything and to the pigs and they fell off the cliff? If I can! Everything is possible for one who believes. And the Father gives the most honest prayer, I think, in all of Scripture. Immediately, boy, Father explained, "I do believe." help me overcome my unbelief. Have you ever been there? I mean, you know enough that Jesus has done, but he's come through for everybody else, but not you yet. <laughs> and, and he's like, God, I want to believe. Help me. He's not demanding a sign. He's saying, God, I want you to help me to trust you. And Jesus meets him right there. And I think it's interesting that it, the boy's father asked for belief because it's the boy who was getting the miracle. But the father's the one who came to Jesus. He was the one that was praying, He said, help. And Jesus does help him. And Jesus casts out the demon and tells him never to return, which is an important thing, because why cast out a demon if he's only going to come back and bring friends later? So he casts out the demon, says, never come back. The boy convulses, right? Falls on the ground, shrieks. The demon comes out and he's set free. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. And later on, the disciples get together around Jesus, and they said, Hey, we've cast out lots of demons before. Why couldn't we do this? And Jesus responds to them. He says, Because you have so little faith. Right, they, they knew enough, but for some reason, once they hit some frustration point, right, this demon was stuck in there a little bit tighter. Right, it was dug in like a tick. When they got to that point, their, their belief failed. And we have Mark actually says in, in here that, that demons like this can only come out with prayer and, and some manuscripts saying also fasting, right? So with this, he says, this one is difficult, but their f- faith began to falter. But he goes on to tell them, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And here we see that Jesus is talking about this mustard seed-sized faith. Now I don't like. I've never really seen a mustard seed. Be quite honest with you. I don't know what they look like, but apparently it's tiny. And the point is this: it's not so much the size of your faith that matters; it's the substance of your faith that matters. That that when you have faith in God, you are inviting Him in. And if your faith of God is maybe you have a a one percent faith in God. Well, one percent God, you're bringing him into your life. One percent of God is infinity because God is affinity. He's an infinite God. Right? You, when you bring in just a little of God, he is always more than enough. It's not your faith that moves mountains. It's God who moves mountains. And that is precisely why nothing is impossible for those who invite God in. It's, it's an amazing thing faith in the wrong things your faith is in the wrong substance you can have a truckload of faith in you know the wrong things it's not going to move anything but even a mustard size bit of god is more than enough now when i was early as a christian i read this and very literally i was 16 years old went outside long's peak i could see it from my house walked outside full of faith said to long's peak move right and i totally believed it was going to happen i mean completely believed and it didn't and I was shattered by this. And I'm like, oh, how could this not be? Something I realized in this is that the mountain is not, it, the mountain is the impossible thing, right? You saw Mount Hermon, if you've ever seen it, it's like this mighty mountain, and Jesus could say, you, you can say to this mountain, move from there. It's impossible. That's the point. That God can move the impossible things, but let's remember God is only going to move the mountains he wants to move. See, God put Long's Peak right where he wanted it because if, if this was just we can just move it up willy-nilly, Long's Peak would never stay still because it would always be some punk Christian <laughs> who would come to our mountains and be rearranging the mountains so they could see Long's Peak from their front door, right? That's what would happen. God will move the mountains he wants to move, but we have to trust him. You have to have the belief that our God can do it, and he will if it's in his will. That's That's the amazing thing. So, We have this request, not a demand, uh, this ability that God has given us access to his power, where we can ask him and invite him into our world to do the impossible things. So I want you to think about what you think is impossible. Could it be our culture? Do you look at our culture and say there is nothing that can turn our culture back to God? Is that a mountain? Are we forget that it's our God is the one who's on the throne? That there is nothing impossible for Jesus? Are there people in your family that you think will never, ever, ever accept the Lord? You, you look at their hearts and you say, so hard, impossible mountain. I want you to know this. Our God moves mountains. After this, Jesus gives his second passion prediction. In Mark thir- uh, 9, it says, They left that place, they passed through Galilee. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Remember, he's avoiding the masses. He's getting back his disciples. So he leaves the area of Mount Hermon, and he goes back down to Galilee, and he ends up in Capernaum, right? But he does this in, l- in this way. He just gets to the very edge of, of uh, the, uh, the, the Galilean area, and he goes back to the village where his kind of home base was. And uh, after he like on the journey on the way back down, he tells his disciples, listen. I've already told you this once, but I really want you to get it. I'm going to be handed over to the the leaders, and they're going to hand me over to Gentiles, and I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to raise again after three days. And the disciples, even though Jesus was talking very plainly to them, they couldn't quite grasp what he was saying because what he was saying didn't fit in their paradigm of what a Messiah should say. But later on, of course, it made a lot of sense to them. Whilst they're in Capernaum, next thing happens is jesus pays the temple tax now i think it's interesting that this is only recorded in the gospel of matthew because what was matthew before he was a disciple tax collector right this spoke to him man this was right up his alley and matthew has uh, he records this is that that uh, while he's there in capernaum uh it, the peter and, and it was over in the temple which of course is just right across the street from his house and uh there's a guy comes up to him and he says, hey, doesn't your master pay the temple tax? And the temple tax was kind of like dues that you would pay and it would come from all over Israel and people would pay to that and it would go for the upkeep and the maintenance and all the workings for the temple, right? And think about Herod now was doing all these expensive improvements in that and so taxes were up and things like this and everyone had to do their part, right? So, so if you didn't pay your taxes, basically like saying I don't care about our faith or anything like this and, and you know, you're kind of shirking responsibility. So Peter goes back to his house, and Jesus is there, and he, he asks him about it, and Jesus said, hey, Peter, let me ask you a question. If you're a king and you have a tax, who do you tax? Do you make that tax onto your family? Do you tax your family, or do you tax your subjects? Where does that tax go? And Peter's like, well, you tax your subjects. He's like, bingo. You're like Jesus is like, I am the God of the universe. Who do you think that temple is for? I'm pretty much exempt from it, and so is my family. But even though he didn't have to pay the temple tax, look what he says. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you're going to find a 4 drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. I think it is, Jesus, one, he recognizes that sometimes as Christians, we have to go above and beyond. There are things that we have the right to do that is just more important that we don't do for the sake of the mission. Jesus had showed that, but he also showed a great sense of humor because he is the God of the universe. And just to punctuate that point, he's going to let the universe pay his tax. He's going to have some fish come up with a coin and pay his tax. And not only his, but also Peter's, right, which is pretty awesome because he's part of the family. Now, after this all happened, the disciples get into an argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom, because if you're walking around with 12 guys, what else are you going to do? And so this is the ongoing debate for the last part of Jesus's life and ministry, and I think Jesus is kind of getting sick of it, so we read in Matthew 18 that he called a little child to him, and he placed the child amongst them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes a lowly position of this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. That our idea of what makes us great, it doesn't work in the, in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is so different than our world. And Jesus is showing this. Like in our world, what makes somebody great? Power, influence, authority, wealth, all these kinds of great things that, that we do. The kingdom of God works in a whole different way. That God values other things and he takes a child who would be in that culture and the time and children really don't have a whole lot of, of, of power, do they? Th- they? They don't have a whole lot of money, right? They're, they're meek and, they're, and uh, they have to obey, right? And they have, to, be, uh, they have to, to basically be subject to everybody else that's around, like what the adults are gonna do, right? You just, as you're a kid, you're like, well I guess this is what we're doing, <laughs> right? And even though in our world that seems very weak, God sees strength in it, and he says, this is, you want to be great in the kingdom, stop trying to make yourself great, Trop, stop trying to do it the way that the world does, which is why in the church we shouldn't have these crazy power struggles, and throughout history when, when the church and the government were all kind of tied together and all is one the same, didn't that what we saw, is you saw corrupt people taking positions of power and authority for the wrong reasons, the church, if you want to be great right in God's eyes, it's a whole different ladder. And he tells us that we could learn a lot by learning to live a childlike faith. Well, he also recognizes, too, that Jesus talks about he has his high value for this innocence that children have. But innocence can make you vulnerable. And children oftentimes suffer because of that. And he goes on to say that's not the way it works in his kingdom. He says, you know what? If you abuse a child, if you teach a child, if you do something nasty to a child in, in his name right he says it's going to be better for you to have a big old rock tied around your neck and tossed into the middle of the ocean because it's the wrath is coming so just because a child is, is innocent and just because a child is meek and just because a child is vulnerable does not mean it's not under God's protection now I want you to hear this brothers and sisters you are God's children as well and when God tells us to go into this world as innocent as doves, as sheep amongst wolves. Don't think for a second that we don't also have and enjoy his protection. He is the great avenger, and he's the God who watches over us. So we have the freedom to be meek in this world because we have a shepherd of our souls, which is a great thing. Well, I don't know if you know this about kids. Kids are cute, and they're wonderful and vulnerable, but they also can be feral and wild, Which is why the very next thing we read in here is Jesus talks about discipline and forgiveness because we are the children of God. And he says, you know, a a good parent is going to discipline their children because children don't know how to act well, right? So a good parent disciplines them. Well, we are the family of God. And he says, we have to discipline each other. Now, quickly, what is discipline? It's not punishment, right? I, here's, let's just say, here's the standard that God wants us to have, and this is where our actions are. Punishment says, see that gap? That's how much you have to suck or suffer for the sake of justice. And, and God and government are the only two entities in all of creation that have been given the authority to punish. But let's just say, here's where God's standard is, and this is where our behavior is. Discipline is doing whatever it takes to raise our behavior up to God's standard. That's what's discipline. That's why we're called disciples, where God elevates how we live. He elevates who we are. And he says, in the kingdom of God, there has to be discipline, but it has to be done in a right and a loving way. So he said, this is how it happens in the kingdom of God. It's not just that you have some authority over you that's always disciplined. He says, no, that's the job of all of us. So if you have a brother or sister and you see them in sin, it says you go to them one on one, right, respecting their dignity and say, hey, here's God's standard and here's where you're at and how can I help you get there? And if that brother or sister looks at you and says, I'm not going to change, well, it's not the end of the story. We don't give up on one another that easy. He says, then you go get somebody else, a friend who you both respect, a neutral third party, and bring them in and then... If they say, yeah, here's the standard, and your behavior's down here, you've got to pick it up. Now you have two people, right, t- telling the person, hey, they, y- your behavior's got to improve, right? We've we got to help you to elevate. And if that person ha- is sitting there, and he's got two Christian brothers and sisters right they're telling him, we're going to help you, and if they, they still say, no, I'm not going to do it, then it says bring it to the body. Now, traditionally, that means going to the elders who represent the body, help with that, but people who know the word. But bring it to the body and say, hey, listen, here's the standard and we care for you enough here's your your behavior right and if the body agrees and says yeah that is the standard (laughs) and your behavior's down here let's let's help you and that person still refuses help this is the third time if they still refuse it and it says well then cast them out treat them like an unbeliever and later in the new testament says and we of course hand them over to the devil why so that they get tossed around a little bit get the consequence of their own actions so that hopefully they will repent and come back and be restored well with that the idea the concept of church discipline is never to put people down it's never to look down our nose at other people and say i'm a more righteous person than you it's always looking out for one another saying how can we elevate each other to the standards that god has called us to to live up to that which we've already attained but as we do it jesus goes on to say but if you're going to do this you also have to be forgiving you cannot discipline one another if you don't have forgiveness. There's no one's going to be vulnerable enough to be disciplined unless forgiveness is there. And to punctuate this point, Jesus then gives a parable that talks about this this unforgiving servant. He's like, it's like there's this king, and he brings, he's going to settle his accounts, and he has this guy come up, and he owns like a billion dollars, and the guy's like, I can't pay a billion dollars back. And the king says, fine, we're going to sell you and everything you have off into slavery, and that's going to be that. going coming, you know, get as much out of you as I can. The man begs for mercy, and the king says, all right, I'll give you mercy. I'll cancel the debt, which would be amazing, because if you owed a billion dollars, like most of us are pretty close to right now as Americans, <laughs> right, and it was just canceled, you'd be happy, wouldn't you? And the man leaves after having all of this mercy, and he goes out and sees his buddy. He owes a 20 bucks, and he leaves right from there, and he sees his friend and says, hey, you got that 20 bucks I owed you? I owe a bunch of, and the guy's like, I'm sorry, man. I, I just don't have any money. I'm down my luck. And this servant, who was just forgiven so much, goes to the nearest police officer and says, arrest that that lousy person. He borrowed money from me, and he can't even pay it back. Can you believe that? Somebody borrowing more than they could pay back? And he locks his friend up in prison over $20. Well, the king comes back. He finds out about this. The king hears about this, and he's furious. He calls the servant back to him and says, dude, I just forgave you a billion dollars. You couldn't forgive your friend 20 bucks? Well, because you care more about justice and vengeance than you do about mercy, I'm going to give you justice and vengeance. And all that billion dollars is on your shoulders again, and you're going to be locked in prison and whipped with scorpions until you can pay it back, which is a little harsh. So, he says it's like that in the kingdom of God. If you receive God's forgiveness, you must also forgive. And forgiveness ties right into discipline. Forgiveness allows us to receive discipline from one another, but also from God, knowing he's the God that forgives us, doesn't hold things against us, but raises us up. In Matthew uh, 18, he goes on to say, and then, and this is in the context of discipline, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For whether two or three are in my name, there I am with them. Now what he's saying is that in that context of discipline, When we come together, when we reach out to another brother and sister and help raise them up, do you know it's it's not just humans trying to help elevate? God himself is there, which is a powerful thing, that God is at work amongst us, raising us, helping us grow, drawing us closer to him. Well, after this, Jesus then he heads back to Jerusalem, but he does so in secret. The Feast of Tabernacles was about to approach. That's in the fall, it's around September, and his brothers were kind of challenging him to go back down to Judah. And this is what they said: This is his brother speaking. No one who wants to be uh, become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Right? They're taunting him. They're like, Hey, we're in Galilee. Y- did you happen to know that the big city and all the f- good things are down there and then the south part, right? It's in Judah. You should be down there. If you're such a big shot, we'll Try stop being such a, a big fish in a small pond, Jesus. And they're challenging him. Why? Because they didn't believe in him yet. Well, Jesus knew it wasn't his time. He knew there were people trying to kill him. He already gave him two passion predictions. He's like, hey, guys, you go, all right? Uh-uh, it's not my time yet. And so uh, he sends them down there. But then afterwards, his brothers had left the festival. He also went, not publicly, though, but in secret. And because he was going to go pub- uh, secretly, the path he would have taken was through Samaria, right? Because the, the rest of the Jewish people go around Samaria, and so his path would, you know, kind of be a little more direct, but also more secretive, um, and it would keep him away from all of those, the, the Jewish people in the crowds and all of this, so he could get there sec- uh, secretly. So it says in scripture he left resolutely f- at this time for Jerusalem, um, and he sends some of his uh, servants down followers down before him into samaria uh to get a room ready for him and you remember this is the same area just a couple years earlier where he went to met that woman at the well uh at jacob's well at sychar right so maybe that's the village he's talking about who knows right but they had seen jesus and he had done some miracles there in that time well when he gets there um to samaria we find that he actually is met with opposition and that's where my favorite apostle and his brother show up, the sons of thunder, which is one of the reasons I think they're so, they're, I s- identify with them so much. The thing is, Jesus sent the servants down in ahead to get a room ready for him, and the Samaritans, even though they had known that Jesus was Messiah, he'd been there, he'd done some things, they didn't want him to stay there, and it says because Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. Remember, the Samaritans and the Jewish people had a differing opinion as to where you should worship and how you should do it, Right? And the fact that the, they were like, well, we like Jesus, but we don't like what he's doing, so we're not going to have any part of it. And so they missed out on it. Now, James and John uh, were, were kind of frustrated by this, and they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? I so identify with this. <laughs> I mean, it just, right? I get it. I mean, have you ever been at times you see, like, the brokenness of the world, and you're like, Lord, they are offending you? Do you want me? I just I'm going to ask fire. Just curse them, right? Just curse them right now, Right? Because I want your justice. Well, they had the right kind of zeal. They knew who Jesus was. They knew his power. They knew his authority. They they, they were rightly offended on behalf of Jesus. But what they had in zeal, they lacked in mercy. And this is something, I don't know if you're someone like me, that sometimes you just have to remind yourself, no, but I've also received God's mercy. I live in his grace. And so Jesus rebukes these two zealous disciples And then what does he do? Does he call down fire? No, he just goes to a different village. I think the greatest curse for that village is that they missed out on spending the night with the Savior and and the God of the universe. He just moved on to where he was welcomed. And on that path, he talks about the cost of following him. There are three different people, three different guys who want to join Jesus' entourage on that journey. And the first guy goes up to him and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, hey, that's great, but here, get this. There are birds that have nests, and there are foxes that have dens, but me, if you want to follow me, I don't have a place to lay my head. So you have to be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross if you want to follow me. There's another guy that goes up and says, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. I'm getting ready, but my dad just died. I'm going to go back to the funeral, and then I'll catch up with you later, okay? And Jesus said, dude, let the dead bury their own dead. If you want to follow me, now's the time. There's a third guy that says, Jesus, I want to follow you right? And this is, uh, but I want to go back and tell my family where I'm going so they don't think, you know, I'm, I'm missing or something like that. They'll know where I'm at. And Jesus, he says to this guy, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the, sa- for the kingdom of God. And that seems awfully harsh, but I want you to understand that, that this isn't a joke, that, that Jesus is calling us to eternal life. He's calling us to, to forgiveness and salvation. This is not a half kind of in type of thing. Jesus doesn't take people on his team who aren't 100% in. He demands commitment, complete commitment. And it is a limited time offer, by the way, right? There is a time that this era of grace will end, and every one of us is going to end, if not before it, when Jesus comes back, it's going to end with our last breath. You have a limited time opportunity when Jesus shows up and he gives you this opportunity to follow him, recognize it is your opportunity for eternal life. Is it worth walking away from everything for? Oh, yeah. But that's also the cost, and you need to know that. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross, and you're going to have to follow him. And so we deny ourselves, we die, and we follow Jesus gets to the um, Feast of Tabernacles. He finally gets down there. He's in Jerusalem. This is a uh, modern day. It's known as the It's the 15th day of the Jewish seventh month is when it happens. So if we see there, uh, it's the Feast of Tabernacles in that bottom part that's uh, right there at the uh, right after the autumn equinox, right? Passover is about six months later. So this starts about the last six months of Jesus' earthly ministry. So while he's down there at uh, at uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, it is a it's a celebration. It's because it's in the fall. It's a harvest festival. It's it's a great time to the where they thank God for the harvest and all those things. It's also a time they sleep out in tents, which is why it's the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. And they do that to commemorate that the fact that the Israelites lived in tents for 40 years as they follow God, that their God is a God who is moving them into freedom. Right. They are strangers, but God's set them free from bondage and they got to live in God's presence and and under his protection. That's time to remember that. Okay, so Jesus gets down there, and he's in Jerusalem. He's at this time, and the Jewish people were waiting for him. It's at the festival. The Jewish leaders were watching for him, and they asked, where is he? Right? They're looking for him, and everybody's whispering about, hey, this is who we think Jesus is, but nobody's talking publicly about it because everybody knew the leaders wanted to kill Jesus, right? And so Jesus, after three days, shows up. He's there, and after three days, I don't know if he just couldn't take it anymore or if this was his plan however it worked, he goes up to the temple, and he starts teaching. And, and this is three days in. It's a busy time, right? It's a big festival, and he's right under the Sanhedrin's nose. And so they send out some guards to arrest Jesus. And the guards show up, but they don't arrest Jesus. And we read about then it, it says, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, asked them, why didn't you bring him in? And their answer is fantastic. They said, because no one spoke the way this man does. Like, you've got to hear this, guys. We can't arrest him. Well, this starts a big debate in the Sanhedrin, and they're like, well, you know, you have Nicodemus is there, who is in the John chapter 3, and, and they're kind of debating and saying, hey, listen, maybe we should hear him out. And others are like, well, wait a second, but Jesus from Galilee, and we don't think a Messiah can possibly come from Galilee. I mean, check it out yourself. I mean, that's kind of like Hicksville, right? And so they have this massive debate. But while they're debating, Jesus is still down there, and he is, uh, he is teaching, Right? And he has this sermon while he's there on the light of the world. And it's a great sermon. Uh, it doesn't end well because they attempt to stone Jesus after this. Right? But Jesus spoke again uh, to the people. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Right, what an amazing promise that Jesus! It's like when when you're walking around your house in the middle of the night and it's totally dark, and you stub your toe, and you're like, "Man, if I just had some lights on, I wouldn't trip over everything." That's how our lives are without God. But Jesus shows up, it's like turning on the lights, and all of a sudden His creation begins to make more sense, and we stub our toes a whole lot less, and we fall down a whole lot less. Right? It's an amazing thing, and we walk in the light of God's life. Well. The Pharisees take issue with Jesus and they say, you can't testify about yourself. That's not valid. And Jesus says, well, actually, it is because I'm God. But he said, but if you want to get technical with me, the law says that two two witnesses are needed to have a testimony be valid. He says, how about this? I'll testify on my behalf, right, as God the Son. And God the Father, hey, do you remember that whole baptism thing? God the Father testifies on me on my behalf as well. So I think God and God should be valid enough for you. And some people heard that, and they said, you know, he's got a fine point, point," and they believed. Others did not, but for those who did believe, Jesus said to them, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is opposite of how normalists think of it. Normally, we think of that there's some theological truth that's out there that all of a sudden, we, we know that truth, right? That's how we become free, right? And if we have that truth, then we will become Jesus' disciples. And once we become Jesus' disciples, we'll hold to his teachings. And once we hold to his teachings, right, then that's kind of the end of it. But that's not how, it's, that's not how he says. He says, if you hold to my teachings, that's the first thing. If you trust him enough to say, I'm going to apply this to my life, right? I'm going to know it, not just intellectually, but know it like in the Bible way of knowing, like Adam knew Eve and then they had a kid, right? We have the truth becomes part of us. You're going to know that truth and it's going to set you free. So The way of following Christ isn't just about getting intellectual know-how by going to Bible studies and just learning what Jesus said. It's applying it to our lives. And if you do that, you're truly his disciple. And the truth becomes part of how you live. It's part of who you are. And that truth changes you. It frees you. So we stop looking for freedom by just understanding the right things. We start trusting Christ And following him and there's a lot of ways we don't understand Jesus isn't that true but if you can obey his teachings even if you don't trust him right then that truth you're going to begin to know it it's going to be who you are and that truth will set you free it's an amazing thing well Jesus then goes into this and, and he says you know and they're saying, well, wait a second, your truth can set us free? And they start talking about Abraham. Are you better than Abraham and Moses? And he says, well, in fact, I am. Before Abraham was, I am, which is another way of saying, hey, I'm God. And they get mad about that, and they're going to take some rocks, and they're going to throw them away. But then Jesus slips away. Second time for a stoning, right? The first time was up in Galilee. This is the time down here. And Jesus slips away, and they can't stone him because it's not his time yet. After this, Jesus sends out 72 disciples out to minister. Now, remember, it started out, Jesus went out to minister. Then he had his 12 disciples who went with him. And then he has sent his 12 disciples out in pairs. And now he sends 72 out, right? And where does he send them? He sends them to Judah, right? The 12 were sent up in the northern part. This is the 12. He sends the 72. He sends them out to minister into Judah. And he says to them down there, he says, he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field, right? You, You see the expansion of the kingdom work? That following Jesus, there's an expectation that we're supposed to be part of something that the followers of Jesus didn't just get to walk around and listen to him and have fish sandwiches all the time. They actually, at some point, got to be sent. And I guarantee it was a little intimidating for them, wasn't it? But Jesus said, there's a big work. And in fact, it's not just you 72. I'm not just looking to have you 72. You need to be asking, but we're going to need more and more and more. And eventually, in Matthew 28, Jesus sends all of us to be the disciple-makers. He says, therefore, go to all nations, right? baptizing them, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples how to obey everything that I've commanded you. And he says, and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so we were all sent. In this, uh, this thing, he says, I'm gonna send you out, and you're gonna go to places that haven't seen miracles, right? You're gonna go out into, he wasn't doing a lot of, of work down there in, in Judah. Most of his work was up there in Galilee. And so in that, he says, you know what, but don't feel bad for these places that didn't have all the miracles. He goes on and he begins to curse Chorazon and Bethsaida and Capernaum. He says, cursed are these three places, which were basically where he was ministering. Those were his three, like his hub, right? That's the centerpiece of this. He said, because if they were places that didn't have miracles like Tyre and Sidon, right? If Tyre and Sidon have even a portion of these miracles, they would have believed, right? But, but here we have, We have all of these these towns that had all of these miracles and they still didn't believe. And it's going to be worse for them on the day of judgment. And why would he say that to these people who are going to serve in the southern part? Because they're going into towns where Jesus hadn't had a phenomenal ministry yet. They hadn't seen all these particular miracles. They just had hearsay and heard about those things. He says, don't let that stop you. You know, sometimes we think that if Jesus would just show up and do all these miraculous signs in our midst, then more and more people would come and follow him. Jesus was there in Corazon and in, and in Capernaum, right? He was in Bethsaida. They had all of these miracles. And what happened? People just sought the miracle, but they, they, the miracles blinded them the fact that God was there amongst them. They missed the gospel. They filled up on the appetizers, the hors d'oeuvres. They missed on the main course we need to make sure that we are not asking God to do something that would only blind people to him, that we're being sent out into this community. And God can do miraculous things anywhere and anytime he wants to. But let's not fool ourselves to say, well, if God would just show up the way he did in the Old Testament, the way that he did in Jesus' ministry, then everyone would believe. That's just not true. And sometimes the miracle actually gets in the way. God has given us exactly what we need to reach Estes Park, He's given us exactly what we need to reach our families. He's given us exactly what we need to reach our co-workers. He is enough. He goes on to give us the greatest commandments. uh, While he's there in in Jerusalem, of course, he sends out the 12. And and, uh, while he's teaching at the temple, or the 72, he sends them out. He's at the Temple Mount, teacher of the law, a lawyer goes up to him and tries to trick him. Like a lawyer question, he says, Hey, what's the most important commandment? Because you've got lots of commandments. And if Jesus says, Well, you know, you, you shouldn't steal, and the guy says, What? Adultery is okay? Because that's how, you know, these conniving lawyers would work. And so he says, What's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, Well, I'll tell you. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these and what Jesus really quotes them is basically the Shema which is a is from Deuteronomy 6 it's the it's the centerpiece of their morning and evening prayers it's, "Hear, O Israel the Lord our God is one love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength something that all the Israelites would have known very much and then he attacks on that second part which is then we also need to if we love God we need to love other people Right? And he says, this is the foundation of law. In fact, it's the purpose of the law. Which means if we are following Jesus and we are not being loving towards God and loving towards other people, we've missed the whole point. God isn't looking for legalistic little monsters and tyrants that just do the right thing all the time. Right? He, he wants us to become loving towards others. And he says, you need to love your neighbor, which of course the, neighbor, the lawyer, um, he got onto that. And he says, well, wait a second, well, who's my neighbor? Because maybe there are people I don't have to love. And Jesus tells them the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so he says all right here's the Samaritan he's a guy travels down this two he's going to go to Jericho and he's going to go down this dangerous path he's alone and then he gets mugged and killed like almost killed and stripped almost naked and beat half to death and he's lying on the side of the road doesn't have anything and sure enough here comes around the corner and you have this levite like a holy guy right a, a, a member of the tribe somebody you think would help and he sees you this man lying there and he's like says well, I don't want anything to do with that and so he skirts around him and there he goes and then here comes a priest who you think well here's a really holy guy right here's a guy that's, and he sees his countrymen laying there bloodied and beaten up and nearly dead and he also takes a wide path around him and goes on his way and then here comes a stinky old samaritan right we all talk about how they feel about it here's a samaritan sees the dude and he's like oh and he feels bad for him has mercy and he bandages his wounds, put him on a donkey takes him down to the nearest you know uh hotel and then checks him in takes care of him feeds him all that kind of stuff the next day he, he you know gives his credit card to the hotel owner and says take care of this guy give him whatever he needs charge it to my card then Jesus said, all right, which of these guys was the neighbor? Was it the priest, Levite, or the Samaritan? And the lawyer says, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. I just think that's hilarious. The one who had mercy on him. And that was the point. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In the kingdom of God, mercy is essential. You can't say you have love if you do not show mercy, right? This is the way that we're to live. God, uh, Mercy is, is God not giving us what we deserve, right? Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, so the two kind of come together, and as Christians, we have received God's grace and mercy. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need, and as Christians, since we have received that, we need to go show that to others. All right, after this, we wind up at the house of Mary and Martha. This is the end of the the, the week of, the f- of celebration at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus now leaves and he moves out of town just uh, a little outside of the vi- to the village of Bethany, which is about a 40 to 45-minute walk um, f- away from east of, the, uh, of the, or yeah, the Mount of Olives. so And Jesus will stay there several times, especially in that last week of ministry. Um, Mary and Martha had a brother, Lazarus, who also uh, was, was there um, and so close family friends. And he's staying there. They're doing some teaching. And, uh, of course, there's people following Jesus. And they are you know, want to talk and things like this. And so Mary and Martha are hosting. And so Jesus starts to teach. And, and as he starts teaching, uh, Mary just sits down and starts listening to Jesus teach. And there's still work to do, because I don't know if you've ever had a dinner party or guests and stuff, but that's a lot of work, right? So Martha's around doing all this stuff. Eventually, she gets frustrated, and she goes to Jesus and says, tell my lazy sister to get up and help me. And, And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about a great many things, but only a few things are needed, indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I think theres a couple things you see first, yes, women were included in Jesus' teaching. They were allowed to sit there and right God came for everybody. Jesus came for us all. but but I think the bigger thing is that Mary or Martha wasn't doing anything wrong. Jesus didn't say, Martha, Martha, you are doing bad things. He says, you're worried about a great many things, right? There's a lot of stuff to do, and there always will be. But we also have to recognize that Mary, what she chose was the best thing. And God's not going to take her away from that. But there is a priority in life. And when you have opportunity to meet with the Messiah, you do it. This last week, 26 of us did a fast. I'm so proud of you. And I hope that it went well. I've heard back from several of you how you got to exchange physical bread for spiritual bread and meet with the Lord. There's a lot of good things that you can do in life. But pursuing Christ, that's the greatest thing we could ever do. And I want you to know this. God will honor that. So pursue Him. And then what a great thing we have there. Okay, so today we went through a lot of stuff. What are some of the things we can learn? Four of them. First one is Jesus expects commitment. You have to understand this. It's it's not it's not a show. It's it's not a game. This is not a club. Jesus is God, and He is Savior. And he has come to save our souls, but he demands that we follow him. He demands that we deny ourselves and that we follow He's not shy about this, nor should he be. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's not like, well, I'm going to follow Jesus until the next good things come along. If you, if you put your hands to the plow, and when you look back, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. If you know who Jesus is and you followed him, treat him as God. It takes commitment. And don't feel like anybody's picking on you because of that. This is the cost of discipleship. And I'm glad it's there because we are those who have been called. We are those who follow the Lord together. We are committed to him, a God who's greatly committed to us. The next thing we find is that Jesus expects forgiveness. One of the marks of the Christian life is that we do not take vengeance into our own hands. Forgiveness is when I hand justice over to God. Right? That's his work. That's what he said. I will do that. But I'm not going to hold things against other people anymore. I'm not worried about the justice. God is the one who can punish. Right? So I'm going to hand that over. And that's one of the marks of Christianity is we trust that our God is big enough and just enough to handle those things. So we forgive because we have been forgiven. So if we have unforgiveness in our hearts towards other brothers and sisters or toward the Lord or to other people, it's one of those things that regularly we need to lay that down because do people offend you? Do people hurt you? Do people do all kinds of nasty things to you? Jesus promised it would happen. What do you do with that? Are you gonna be like the rest of the world pagans who are gonna try to gain justice on their own behalf and have bitter and horrible lives filled with anger and frustration? Or will you give those things to God? Will you uh, will you trust him enough with those wrongs and to forgive the person because you have been forgiven? Can you do that? Not to be the unforgiving servant, but to follow God, right? And forgiveness makes discipline possible, but if we're going to forgive other people, we also then have to recognize that Jesus expects mercy as well, right? That Jesus is saying, well, we can't just forgive somebody like, oh, I'm just going to but I'm going to hope you get bad things, right? That, that we develop a heart of mercy. Christians should be the most compassionate of all humans because the God of all compassion came to us. Into a world that tells Jesus, move on to the next village because we don't like what you're doing here. We want to call down fire, but we have to have a different kind of heart develop in us where we actually love our neighbors. And sometimes our neighbors are people we disagree with profoundly. Sometimes our neighbors are people who make us frustrated. But instead of giving them what they deserve, as Christians, we ought to seek to give them what they need. And more than anything else, they need to know their Savior, the light of the world, the bread of life. And So we need to give mercy. The last thing is Jesus expects ministry. If you are a follower of Jesus, there's work for you to do. It says in the word that he saved you to do the good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. Jesus saved no one into retirement. right? If we're going to follow him, it's not just going to Bible class. It's doing ministry. It's serving, which is why in our church we say every member is a minister because in the Bible it says every Christian is a minister. We all have ministry to do. We serve because Christ is served us. We serve because he gave us work to do, and it's an an expression of our faith in him. It's a way that we worship him even with our abilities, and if you need help in how you are supposed to be ministering or what you can do, guess what? God provided you a pastor. That's what it says in the words. And elders, our job is to equip you for that and to help you engage. So come talk to us, and we'll help you with that. All right, let's go into our our things where we have our um, our connection card, our next steps, because I want you to follow Jesus in this. There are some things you do, so on the back of your connection card, there are four opportunities that I'm going to give you to take some steps to apply some of these things we talked about today. And the first one is, why don't you memorize Matthew 16, 24? Spend some time with God. Let his word do its work in your heart. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? How does it apply to you that anyone who wants to be his disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him? I guarantee if you start praying that prayer to God, how am I supposed to deny myself? How am I taking up my cross? God, how can I do this? How am I following you? God will answer that. Take some time to, to memorize and meditate that. If you want to, I well, I skipped a lot of stuff today because there was a lot of things to cover, and it's a long sermon anyhow. So why don't you read in the Word, John chapter 7-8. through eight. Luke's chapters nine through ten, right? Those two passages are going to cover a lot of different things that happened this area in Jesus' ministry. So take some time in the word. How about this? Can you forgive somebody? Is there somebody or or maybe a group of people that you are holding bitterness in your heart with? Take this as an opportunity to forgive them. Commit to say, God, forgiveness is a process. So you maybe it's the first time or the thousandth time you've had to say, I'm forgiving this. But you need to, to offer forgiveness? Write it down. Start doing business with God. Hand forgiveness, uh, you know, over to him and that. The last one is I'm going to invite you to join our Sunday squad. Everybody's a member, as a minister. Well, we're the family of God, and uh, you'll notice now that we have all of our seats back. People are coming back, and we need some help again with our greeting and with uh, setting up those little things in the seat back pockets and cleaning out the chairs between the services and all that kind of stuff. And if you can help us by using that as a ministry that you can do for, uh, you know, once or twice a month, then let me know that by by checking that off and guess what? Carissa will be contacting us this week. She's going to help you get trained and and uh, on the calendar and scheduled, but uh, it's a way of putting your faith into practice. Okay, well that's all I have, so uh, I'm going to pray for you as we make our commitments and then we'll have a song of commitment as well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this, this dear church family. I love them so much and I know that you do too. Lord, we thank you that you've called us into a great kingdom and yes, you expect commitment, but you've you're committed to us enough to die on a cross and to, to rise again you're committed enough to give us your Holy Spirit who dwells and lives with us even when we're difficult Lord you're a God who, who is, you expect great things from us like mercy and forgiveness but you've given us mercy and forgiveness so since you filled us with these things help us to be a church that exudes them into the world that needs it Father you've given us ministry because first you've ministered to us but you've made us for good works Raise us up, Lord, as we can serve you in a way that brings you glory and brings our community closer to you. We pray all of this in the powerful name of our Savior, our wonderful Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.